Red Salute, and welcome back to the Manifesting Podcast. So for those of you that have maybe checked out the show before, it has obviously been quite a while since I've released an episode. I think it's almost approaching a year now. Um, I will kind of touch briefly on, on where I've been, why I decided to take such an extended hiatus, and why I'm back. I'm going to save the bulk of that discussion, honestly, for probably the end of the episode or some point later in the episode. I don't want to front load this with, with shit about myself, but I will, again, touch briefly kind of on what I've been up to. Um, getting into the uh, the real nuts and bolts of what this episode is going to be about. Now, I wanted to come back and kind of do a series of shows really about leftist ideology, kind of starting from the, the base level and working our way up from there. Just because if you're if you're new to leftism, if you're new to concepts like like communism, anarchism, etc., can be a little bit overwhelming. It's you know the the waters get really murky with so many isms and, and schools of thought. And I think if we're going to take on these daunting tasks like having a revolution or or challenging a mode of production that's so dominant, you know, such as capitalism, it's so important to to start with having some coherency in our ideology, getting on the same page so we can effectively organize. And, you know, if we're going to be talking about these, these incredible feats as people as like such as revolution, we've got to start with at least being on the same page. So I'm going to really, really talk about the necessity of communism, why I'm a communist, why I think that's ideologically the most sound route to take if we're actually serious about having revolutions and changing the world. So we'll talk a little bit about communism. We'll talk a little bit about Marxism, Leninism, and Maoism, MLM theory. Um, It's going to be a little further down the road, but we will get there. And we're going to kind of compare and contrast that with other schools of thought like anarchism, social democracy, reformism, which at their base level honestly sound more appealing. You know, I, I know the word communism, especially when you start talking about like Lenin and, uh, and Mao, there's a lot of stigma surrounding those terms and those people. So hopefully this will be an attempt. It's not the only attempt. It's not the best attempt. There's, there's other great work out there. But this will be my attempt to kind of clear the air on some of that. And again, we'll talk about how leftists, or as leftists, excuse me, just again how vital it is to be coherent and, and how important it is to take a scientific approach to our ideology. So the reason I wanted to come back and really start with clearing the air around leftist ideology, at least the best of my ability, it kind of starts with myself, to be honest. Uh, this is kind of my self-crit moment, if you will. I just, uh, I recently went back and listened to a lot of my older work, and I mean... To be quite honest, a lot of it was hot garbage, not all of it, but, um, you know, there was just, I was still pretty liberal in my outlook. I considered myself a leftist and as a white male, especially here at the Metropoles, it's easy to assume like you've read a few things, you've kind of found the philosopher's stone, you need to go out and like tell that to the world. So I thought my theory was pretty on point. Looking back, it was, it was not, it was muddy, it was weird. Again, I was pretty liberal on a lot of points. Um, you know, a few of my highlights, if you want to call them that, is I did, it was like episode three, I think, even, like I did an episode on Marx. You know, some of it was there, some of it was was decent, but um, I ended up talking about like authoritarian communism when it came to like Lenin and Stalin and Cuba and China, and it's just, it was kind of parroting like Cold War propaganda by the end of the episode, like somehow there's this 
this shining like orthodox marxism that we should be like searching for which is a bunch of horseshit that you will still read from some people uh my other again i say this sarcastically favorite episode was i did an episode um on rosa luxemburg's work reformer revolution where she kind of dresses down edward bernstein for being a reformist and, and really spelled out why reformism is complete horseshit I mean, that's not the issue. That's still completely true. Like, Rosa Luxemburg was right on with that point. But in that episode, like, shortly after talking about why Rosa Luxemburg was correct in her theory, I think I advocated, like, voting for Jill Stein and how electoral politics were still important, like, during the same fucking episode without kind of catching the irony of that. So, again, you know, I just looking back, a lot of my theories, I think, were, were kind of there. Most of it was half-baked. You know, I, I did talk a lot about kind of economics and foreign policy. I think a lot of that stuff is still decent, um, but it's not it's not it's something that you couldn't have heard from like Democracy Now! or, you know, Jesus, like a thousand other leftist sources. So that kind of leads me into my discussion here about where I've been. Um, one, I got tired of talking about Donald Trump. I think we all all went through a little bit of a depression after his election. It was just overwhelming. It still is overwhelming. I mean, every day there's still this insane story about uh, what Trump is up to, et cetera. But that was just overwhelming the news cycle. I got involved in talking about it, which was just a departure from what I was attempting to do. And I just decided, like, you know, let's take some time away. Let's really sharpen my theory instead of, you know, giving my, my hot takes on the fucking Trump presidency, which everybody else on earth is doing, which I'm not saying that's not important work, but it's not what I set out to do. Let's take some tep like some time away. Um, again, read some theory, see where I'm at. And just as I read, as I kind of explored things, I realized, you know, how much I didn't know. So it's been about a year. Um, I feel better. That's not to say I'm coming back with like that, that same hubris, like I know everything. But I do feel a lot more confident and a lot more sound in my theory. And I feel like for those of you that kind of dug the show before, kind of the way I present leftist theory, that this would, this would I wanted to do you more of a service and give you correct information again, instead of like parroting Cold War propaganda or just being completely off base on some of these topics. Now, all that being said, let's jump into the actual episode itself here. Like I said at the top, I wanted to talk about how vital it is to have some coherency in, in our ideology as leftists, how important it is to take a scientific approach when it comes to issues like revolution or overthrowing a mode of production like capitalism, which is an extraordinarily daunting task. So if we want any hope of, of even making a dent in that system, it's so, so vital to actually be on the same page and throw out a bunch of the horseshit that, that we end up fighting about for no reason. So we're going to talk about the necessity of communism, which I personally feel, and I feel like kind of a, a growing tide is starting to feel is the best route to making these changes. You know, I think Marxists of all stripes can at least agree on that Marx quote that, you know, philosophers had interpreted the world. The point, however, was to actually change it. So if we're serious about changing the world, we're serious about revolution, we can't just have this this scattered movementism, this idealism that we see, especially here in like the United States, Canada, really in the metropoles, you know, um, you know the centers of capitalism. And there's a lot of reasons we have such scattered movementism in those places, which we'll get into. But again, I just want to uh, to hammer home the point that that's not going to cut it. It's not going to cut it. It hasn't cut it. 
we're losing this battle. So how do we turn the tide? How do we get on the same page to actually fight back against some of these systems that are exploiting and murdering people around the globe? Now, if we're going to have a conversation about something like communism, especially here in the West, in imperialist countries, I think it's really important to start with unlearning some of the stuff that we supposedly quote unquote know about communism. I think, you know, for most of us, we've grown up under or have been subject to a lot of anti-communist propaganda throughout our entire lives. And it's, it's difficult to unlearn. You know, like I mentioned just previously when I was doing my episode um, on Marx and communism, etc., I was parroting the same propaganda that I had heard growing up. You know, I'd broken through a little bit of that. I was at least considered myself a Marxist, so that was a first step in breaking through some of that propaganda. But when it came to, uh, again, like Lenin, Stalin, Mao, Castro, etc., I was, I was essentially under the assumption, like I feel like a lot of people are, that these were, you know, kind of authoritarian just hell holes <laughs> in a lot of ways, because that's what you learn. I mean, it's the West obviously benefits greatly from that narrative being out there for good reason. Um, so again, I really want to start with just doing kind of a base level debunking of some of the more common myths surrounding communism, and especially the big names involved, again, like Lenin, Stalin, Mao, etc., it's, I think it's important to start there just because I feel like that's one of the main reasons like why something like anarchism is, is so uh, so appealing here in the West. Just because, you know, when you hear the word communism here, you just, you instantly start to think of the, these failed experiments, um, these super authoritarian regimes, these tyrants who have supposedly killed millions and millions of people, potentially worse than Hitler even. I mean, that's... It's just going to pop up in your mind when you hear that if you haven't kind of heard the other side of the story. You know, that old adage about how, you know, the victor writes history. I think I just butchered that completely, but you know what I'm talking about. Um, that's that's especially true in the case when it comes to, uh, to communism and socialist states throughout history, to say the least. Now, the proof that that propaganda has been so incredibly effective here in the West is, uh, you know, we go back to something like anarchism. And this doesn't just... Um, this isn't just something that, that anarchists will say. A lot of leftists that refuse to call themselves communists or even want to touch that term with a 10-foot pole will, will resort to this this thing where, you know, they're like, okay, especially as an anarchist, we'll just use them as an example here. Um, you know, they'll, they'll be very hesitant to believe imperialist propaganda. At least they'll say that. You know, they're like, all right, we don't really trust the U.S. government. We don't trust the state. We know that they're out, you know, just kind of causing mayhem around the world, just gathering up all these resources. They're, they're totally on the same page with communists in that respect that, yeah, imperialist powers are going to lie. They're going to propagandize uh, to serve their interests. But when it comes to that narrative about communism and, and socialist states throughout history, you know, anarchists and other leftists that don't consider themselves communists are somehow just really, really excited and, and, and ready to believe anything that imperialist powers have to say about communism or actually existing uh, socialist states. So it's, it's kind of a, a funny dichotomy there where, you know, everything else the U.S. government has said is probably bullshit and just kind of serving their interests except for when they talk about communism and socialism somehow you know they would never lie about that so you know we're gonna buy that bullshit hook line and sinker you know it's i think it just kind of makes hypocrites out of maybe you know otherwise well-meaning individuals and it's no coincidence that there's been such a sustained and involved um, smear campaign against communism 
and successful socialist states and revolutions. Uh, you know, we look back, even going back to like the French Revolution, but especially the October Revolution of 1917 under Lenin in Russia, the Chinese Revolution, etc. You know, these these events scared the shit out of imperialists and capitalists. It was proof positive that worker states, workers' revolutions can actually happen. And, you know, it was a real threat to the status quo. It was a real threat to these people that were benefiting from these exploitive systems. So, again, it's... It's not a coincidence that these smear campaigns still go on today. Unfortunately, some of that propaganda is starting to to break, I think, in large part just because of something like the Internet, you know, where um, information is so readily available. But that doesn't mean that, that these capitalists have slowed down the smear campaign against communism. So it's important, even with all that information out there, you know, there's still a lot of misinformation. I would say misinformation still rules the day when we're talking about communism and, and some of the personalities within. So, again, I wanted to do kind of just a base level debunking of some of the more common things we hear about communism and especially about the people involved. Now, if we're talking about historical revolutions, um, you know, the first world historical revolution was really the French Revolution. Um, that is not subject to as much propaganda. I mean, it certainly deals with some, but it's, it's not at the same level of like communist states. So why that's an incredibly vital uh, part of history and certainly worth looking into, I don't think we necessarily need to cover that just yet as it pertains to um, the idea of communism and, and kind of, again, you know, the propaganda that has been levied against communism. So I think a good place to start really is with Lenin and that revolution that took place in, in 1917 in Russia. Now, for discussing, like, uh, smear campaigns against communist leaders, when we look at Lenin, um, you know, it's it's not mild <laughs> in comparison, but there's certainly, he's been dragged through the mud to a lesser degree than figures like Stalin and Mao. That's not to say that there isn't a lot of bullshit Western historian, bourgeois historian nonsense out there. I mean, go to your local bookstore, go to like the Russian Revolution section or the Russian history section. There's there's a bunch of horseshit about how Lenin was this terrible figure. It's not, again, to the degree of something like Stalin or Mao, but it's certainly out there. Now, when we're talking about Lenin, the narrative that he was somehow this insane dictator who murdered millions and millions of people, that's not really out there. Um, you know, at least it's not prevalent. There certainly are people who believe that bullshit. But um, the main criticism really levied at Lenin and the Bolsheviks is this fact that during 1917, you know, there was a revolution before the revolution, if you will, like during February of that year in which, you know, kind of this provisional government took over. This was under the guise of, of a workers' revolution. You know, this was this was somehow going to be a blend of workers' revolution while still having this, this democratic theme there. You know, it's still a good democracy in the eyes of the West. But, you know, there's a reason that Lenin pushed so hard against that provisional government. That provisional government was still happy to send people to slaughter during World War One. It had no interest in actually giving power to the workers, which was the point of the fucking revolution, right? You know, without that, what do you really have? So a lot of Western historians will say that, okay, Lenin and the Bolsheviks kind of had this coup d'etat and, and threw over this popular revolution and, and wanted to put themselves at the top as kind of this this dictatorship, you know, wanted all this power. He was power mad and all the Bolsheviks were power mad. They couldn't accept the fact that they couldn't win through elections. So they had to have, again, this coup d'etat. But again, if you look back at history, it's complete bullshit. 
It's complete bullshit. A revolution does not involve a government that is still slaughtering its citizens. And a revolution does not involve a state which is still exploiting the workers, which again was the whole point that Lenin was talking about and had been writing about since the late 1800s. So the revolution that, that Western bourgeois historians like to cling to as, as the pure revolution was no revolution at all. So, you know, are you going to blame Lenin for actually pushing it past the line there and having an actual revolution? I think that's ridiculous. And I think if you're leftist and you're looking at that scenario and you somehow want to say Lenin was on the wrong side of that, I think you're on the wrong side of history. You're supporting the slaughter of citizens. You're supporting the exploitation of citizens. So what kind of leftist are you if you support that type of propaganda? Lenin and the Bolsheviks were correct, and I don't think that's really an arguable point, to be quite honest. And further proof that, that Lenin and the Bolsheviks were correct came in the form of the response after the revolution from imperialist powers around the globe, especially here in the West, the United States. They went out of their way to do whatever they could to try to take down this workers' state, this workers' revolution, even through things like funding the White Guards and the civil war that followed the Russian Revolution. You know, the, the imperialist powers had no no interest in seeing a worker's state or a successful worker's revolution anywhere in the world. So again, they went out of their way to try to tear this thing down. Now, did they do that right after the uh, the revolution of 1917 during February? No, they didn't, because it wasn't actually a revolution. So when you have historians and leftists claiming that the Bolsheviks were just power mad and they wanted to take power and they were these crazy dictators, it's bullshit. It's bullshit. They wanted an actual revolution. They won a revolution. And the truth is really in the response from the imperialists that followed. Now, all that being said, it is still important to remember that Lenin and the Bolsheviks, they weren't infallible. You know, they didn't do everything correctly. And Lenin admitted as much. You know, he wrote on that pretty extensively. You know, it, it does us a disservice as leftists to pretend that these are some god figures, like when we're talking about Lenin, Stalin, and Mao. Um, you know, they made mistakes. They did make mistakes. But that's why it's so important to learn from history. Let's see what they got right. Let's see what they did wrong. Let's learn from that. Let's take a scientific approach to history and revolution, see what's universally applicable from these, these revolutions, and move forward. But again, this narrative that Lenin was some, was some power-mad dictator, it's just untrue. He was a successful revolutionary, and he had really secured the first socialist revolution in history. So when we talk about some of the mistakes maybe he made, I mean, in that respect, it, it's pretty goddamn forgivable because he's doing something, you know, he and the Bolsheviks are doing something that had never been done in history. So there's going to be some growing pains. There's going to be mistakes that are made. But again, Lenin admitted these mistakes. He himself did not pretend he was perfect. You know, it's, that's so important to remember here that, you know, throughout history, many of these communist leaders they were they were criticizing themselves more often than not but they were in a situation that was completely new you know they they didn't have a track record of history to go on and be like okay well this is how we do it they were learning as they were as they were going through these things so it's important to remember that these these figures are not infallible but this insane narrative that they're murderous and insane is just absolutely ridiculous so moving forward throughout history, um, we kind of come to the bell of the ball, <laughs> as it were, as it concerns kind of Western propaganda about a murderous communist dictator. We're going to talk a little bit about Stalin. Now, again, just like I said about Lenin, Stalin was not infallible. There were mistakes made, of course, but these excesses that, that he supposedly murdered millions upon millions of people, 
it's just again is kind of creating this boogeyman out of a successful communist leader so i mean we've all heard something or another about stalin throughout our lives i'm sure um you know it's even to the point now where i think if you ask the the average american citizen about stalin there's going to be this narrative that he's this this murderous crazy dictator you know even you have some people where it's common knowledge that well maybe he even killed more than hitler etc that's still that's still out there that's still kind of the prevalent idea when you're talking about stalin so with Stalin, you know, he's he's just not this cartoonish villain that, that people wish he was. It's just, it's simply not true. One, there's a, a, a vast lack of evidence about all these supposed millions and millions of killings. Funny how that works out. You know, the mistakes you can say that Stalin made was perhaps in his command, you know, the Communist Party. It was top down. It was kind of like almost a military take on, on how to run a party. Now, again, we have to take that, you know, in the proper context, though. You know, you have Stalin at the head of a socialist state, a growing superpower in a lot of ways. And, you know, there's going to be people who are trying to take him down. There was not only imperialist powers around the world trying to take Stalin down. There were traitors within his own party who had their own self-interest at heart when they were trying to take down the Communist Party. So he was surrounded by wolves in a lot of respects. So it's 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 easy to understand why he would want to really close shop, you know, kind of tighten ranks and, and make sure that he wasn't be trying to, uh, you know, be taken down by people who are close to him. It's a completely understandable mindset. Now, were there excesses? Were there people who were probably purged or or kicked out of the party, et cetera, that shouldn't have been? Sure there was. Sure there was. But again, you have to take it in the proper context that this man was under attack from left, right, and center by many powers. So it's, again, it's completely forgivable, especially when you're running the first socialist state in history, taking over after Lenin. You know, you don't have an exact blueprint on how that's supposed to work. And it makes it extraordinarily more difficult when you're dealing with all these wolves at your door. So, you know, this narrative that Stalin murdered millions and millions of people, one, there's a complete lack of evidence that any of that shit is true. Two, I mean, there is some evidence to the contrary that some of the people that he did purge or kill, honestly, were, were traitors who were trying to take down the, uh, you know, the communist powers there. If you're going to have a revolution, I think part of the job is to protect that goddamn revolution. So, yeah, a revolution, as Mao said, is not a dinner party. There's going to be bloodshed. It's an unfortunate truth. You know, we can't be idealists and assume that these are nonviolent affairs. So if you are protecting the first socialist state in history, you're going to have to defend that with violence every now and again. So, yeah, th that happened. Again, were there excesses? Yes. Was the top-down command of the party maybe not the best way to, uh, to run things? You know, uh, did, did Stalin maybe not misunderstand, but maybe um, underestimate the fact that you still had to have kind of a class war even under socialism. You still had to hash these things out. Yeah, maybe he did. But again, he wasn't working off of a blueprint here. He was learning as he was as he was doing these things. So again, if we take it in the proper context, these are forgivable in retrospect in so many ways. Now, we'll go ahead and wrap up this discussion just looking at time. Um, we'll talk a little bit about Mao, um, who suffered a lot of the same propaganda that, uh, that Stalin did about murdering millions and millions of people. We'll talk a little bit about Mao and the Chinese Revolution, then we'll probably end on that note. Again, this is going to be a series of episodes. This is hard to, uh, to fit into 30 minutes because there's so much to talk about. So let's discuss Mao here briefly. Now, as I just said, you know, he suffers from that 
the same idea that he was just murdering his citizens haphazardly without giving a shit, this murderous dictator. Again, these things are not true. So the biggest thing that Western historians will cling to, bourgeois historians, is really two things. They'll talk about the Great Leap Forward, which is when the Chinese uh, Party, or the Communist Party of China, excuse me, um, tried to collectivize things, tried to really put socialism into action and, and uh, you know, put these ideas in, into, uh, into practice. So you had the Great Leap Forward, which was, again, this, this collectivization campaign where they had rural farms working together kind of as these units. And, you know, there's a couple things that happened there. One, there was a natural disaster. There was an actual famine that took place. So the timing was just less than ideal, to say the least. You know, I don't care if it's a, a collectivized farm. It's a farm of any sort. If you're dealing with, with you know, extreme weather conditions, shit's going to kind of go topside on you. That's just how it goes. Now, if you read, um, I really suggest if you're really interested in like uh, kind of the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution, uh, do read The Unknown Cultural Revolution by Dong Ping Han. Uh, Mobo Gao's got some great work on this, too. But what you'll read there is that, you know, a lot of the issues, aside from natural disaster, more or less, is that there was some low level corruption in the Communist Party of China. That's that's an absolute fact. So you had you had these leaders in these areas, these rural areas, especially who, who were corrupt, who were not doing what they're supposed to do. And that ended up leading to some, some major failures in the collectivization project. Now, you know, Mao himself admitted that. Again, like we go back and talk about these leaders, they admit their mistakes more often than not. Mao admitted that, you know, in retrospect, hey, we could have done this differently. And they, they did. They made those changes. Um, again, talking about Dongping Han's work here, the Unknown Cultural Revolution, you'll see shortly after the Great Leap Forward that things improved dramatically. You know, not to mention like life expectancy, literacy rate, those things just went through the roof. But actual, you know, the, the amount of food that was being grown, et cetera, these things all kind of skyrocketed after the... Uh, the great leap forward. So these, at the end of the day, once the, the issues were corrected, these were successful projects <laughs> in the long run. Um, you know, it's, uh, that can't be stated enough that this ended up being a success in the long run. Had we not had that extreme weather event, this could have been a completely different narrative. But, you know, again, you do have Western historians clinging to this, like, you know, Mao took all the grain and starved his citizens, which is just, it's not true. You have to read history. You have to read the proper history, I should say, from the other side of the story. Um, and another thing a lot of Western historians will criticize Mao about is the, the Cultural Revolution. But the Cultural Revolution, if, if you think about it, and we'll get more into detail again, this is surface level. The Cultural Revolution was such a huge idea because one of Mao's great contributions to communism and communist thought is, is the fact that, yeah, this, you know, this class war continues under socialism. We're still going to have to hash these things out, even under a socialist state. That, you know, that war never really ends. You know, there's you can't just have a socialist state and then all of a sudden everybody's on board. You know what I mean? There's going to be bourgeois elements who are trying to detract from those successes. And there's going to be citizens who have grown up under a mindset for their entire lives. It's hard to break that shit. You know, like what does it mean to be an actual communist in a communist society? The cultural revolution was, was really trying to answer that question. And again, it was one of Mao's greatest contributions to communist thought, honestly. Now, people obviously from the West saw this as, again, just a, a dictator trying to impose his will. 
but it was very much the opposite. The Cultural Revolution was so inspiring because you had schools popping up in rural areas. Again, I can't recommend this book, The Unknown Cultural Revolution by Dong Ping Han enough. If you're interested, it's so, so worth a read because you saw finally after the Cultural Revolution that these rural areas, they were setting up schools, hospitals, you know, you name it, these things were popping up. So it just empowered kind of the poorest citizens in that country to, to have, you know, some, some fucking like respect in a lot of ways. Like they were treated as people. They got to go to school. They got to, you know, go to the hospital if they had to go to the hospital. And that's why we saw things like literacy rate skyrocketing, um, life expectancy skyrocketing. These were great improvements for the people that needed improving the most. You know, these were successful campaigns in a lot of ways. So to claim that the Cultural Revolution was somehow a crazy dictator imposing his will, the facts just do not bear that out. It was him lifting up the neediest people in his country and successfully doing so. All right, just looking at time there, we'll probably go ahead and wrap up the episode there. Uh, this is a conversation that's going to take a while. You know, when we're talking about things like communism, debunking some of those myths especially, I think that's really the place we have to start. It's a, it's a vast and nuanced conversation, so we'll continue that next episode, try to clear the air a little bit more, and then really get into, uh, you know, why is it worth doing all this debunking? You know, why is communism so special and, and superior to these other schools of thoughts? Like, why is it worth doing all this work? Because we're going to talk about some of the good uh, that communism ha has given us <laughs> a lot of the things we can learn from communism and why, again, it's kind of the most scientific approach to actually changing the world. So we'll get into some of that next episode. Um, if you're looking for other content, I can't recommend this new podcast enough. There's a, a, a dude, Mubarak, from Turtle Island. He's a Maoist. He's doing this. He's only put out two episodes so far, but it's fucking such a good podcast. It's called the On Mass Podcast. You can find him at On Mass Podcast, like on Twitter, Instagram, etc. Support that dude if you can. He's doing, like, fucking rad work. His first episode, he had Jay Mufawad Paul on for this really, really good interview kind of about MLM theory. Um, second episode is about settler colonialism, which is such an important, like, fucking idea. Especially if you're a white leftist, like, you have to check that shit out. It's so eye-opening. Uh, you know, there's a lot of work that's been written out there, but if you're looking for a podcast specifically about settler colonialism, please check out the On Mass podcast. Like, Mubarak's doing fucking excellent work. Support that dude if you can. Speaking of supports, you know, I've said before on this show, like, I never wanted to try to monetize this thing at all. I did set up a Patreon, which feels so gross to talk about. If you want to kick me a couple bucks, like that's rad. I would love to do this more often. I'd love to commit to this kind of full time. I don't want to make it seem like if I don't get any contributions, like I can't do the show. I'm still going to do the show. Like that's not what this is about. But any support is like fucking greatly appreciated. I would love to be able to do this more often. You know, I do have to work otherwise to support myself. So again, it's like uh, patreon.com slash manifest pod. If you feel like supporting the show, if you don't, that's totally cool. I just appreciate you checking it out really. All right. So on that note, we'll see you next week, next episode, I should say. And until then, red salute.